Welcome to this episode of the Knowledge Institute, where we talk with experts on business trends, deconstruct main ideas, and share their insights. Today, I am happy to be joined by Corey Glickman, partner and head of strategic design consulting for Infosys, a global leader in digital services and consulting. Welcome, Corey. Thank you, Jeff, and I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you today. Well, I'm excited about this one because of, of the topic and also the, the broader implications. Before we dive into smart spaces, which is going to be the topic for, for this discussion, do you mind giving some background, kind of uh, your journey and maybe how you got to this point in your career? So how I would describe myself is that I have had a background in design foremost. I also have had uh, strong experiences in the um, areas of engineering and physics. I've had the um, honor and opportunity to work with the Navy and uh, many of our government agencies and defense departments in particular. I've also had um, unique opportunities where I've worked with um, some leaders in the entertainment and in the business field. I would say that my combination of backgrounds over the last 35 years has really been a combination of both in industry and um, as a consultant. I've got to work with many specialists in many types of fields. And all this has really helped, um, I think, bring a perspective when I look at problem solving. Knowing you and your background, uh, one of the things I also want to share with our listeners is uh, you've won some global and very prestigious awards in the area of design, as well as being on uh, review boards for publications like Harvard Business Review and others. So uh, your expertise and your, uh, your insight is, is very welcome here. Prior to taking on your role, add emphasis in the strategic design consulting. What are some of the more interesting things maybe about design and about these areas could you highlight uh, as we get started? So my experiences when I first started out it really was uh, in the area of physics, uh, looking at actually uh, nuclear engineering uh, early on in, in my education. And that was probably where one of my first uh, crossroads actually uh, started for me. I was able to um, team up with um, one of the early designers and scientists who were actually working on the first Star Wars uh, film, the very, very first one. And he was one of my uh, college professors, and I had the opportunity to understand how does light and perspective work on sets, and where does light and perspective um, help you create these, these, not just imaginary worlds, but situations that you can um, imagine yourself in and, and create not just an illusion, but actually an emotional connection uh, to storytelling. And that becomes very relevant throughout my whole career around storytelling and also having the science behind it to actually exponentially make that storytelling not just more believable, but maybe something achievable in the future. Heading past that point, um, coming out of the, the physics realm, I then started taking classes um, in theology uh, through um, other professors' recommendations because science alone is not the only answer to many questions uh, that I had or were uh, problems that I was trying to, to look at. And so theology is also interesting in concepts of faith and concepts of understanding the covenants of society and how so many of our laws and how we get along, which is so relevant today, um, are, are derived. 
And in that direction, I had a, a very, very interesting mentor um, and who many people know is um, one of the early pioneers of child um, television. The PBS was Fred Rogers, who actually was a theologist who I had worked with for close to 10 years. And he was quite revolutionary back in the 1950s, where he took an outstanding new technology called television and said it has to be more than um, clowns being hit in the face with pies. And actually that you can teach messages and you can start to talk to a wider audience. And what was amazing about Fred Rogers over his 30 plus year uh, career on television was the fact that he had a very consistent message and it was very honest and it really talked to everybody and it talked about consistency of brand and consistency of message. And there's certainly a lot of lessons I learned um, through there. Um, then going forward, uh, my next uh, stop on education was actually uh, with the Navy, um, with the um, Annapolis War College, where I um, did several um, um, assignments and uh, did several programs and still have a relationship there, where I met other great mentors, uh, one in particular who was actually a um, very famous um, submarine captain during World War II. Um, and he taught me many life lessons about uh, command and control and how do you lead, um, how do you trust teams. So there's just been a combination of experiences for myself. And those have basically allowed me to um, deploy those lessons learned, whether it has been for producing television shows, designing for those, uh, working on science projects. Um, I've done large events such as the uh, Nagano Olympics uh, back in uh, the 1990s, uh, where I was one of the lead producers on this. I've done work where I've helped uh, General Motors restructure during uh, the mid-2000s. I have um, done many, many kinds of design projects um, over my 30-something-plus-year career. Um, and I've been lucky enough to have won uh, many awards, as you've said. Uh, one of the biggest uh, two honors that I could say that I could directly relate to is um, I was named one of the 100 most influential designers um, of, of the period, and that was uh, quite an honor. The second one was that um, I was selected um, to help lead a uh, program around Frank Lloyd Wright for the uh, Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City uh, as a permanent exhibit. So these are things um, along the way, along with doing business solving problems and working with many, many different kinds of uh, individuals, whether they're technologists, designers, or business folks on the kinds of problems they need to solve. Um, always excited for whatever I'm working on currently. I'm always excited to be working with new people. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. Not only does it establish a background, it also so many things we could talk about maybe in a future discussion. I like to do is bring that then to, to more of a focus on the topic for today, which is smart spaces. And it's, it's an area that might sound obvious or might sound a bit uh, ambiguous. C could you help us understand what smart spaces are and why they're important now? I think is the hot topic, you know, of, of, of the day, if not for the next decade. Smart spaces um, are buildings and areas where we are now putting sensors and technology and access to data that are helping us be more productive. And why it's important now is the fact that 
the cost of getting access to the data and deploying these technologies is, is very achievable at this point, and that's why it's relevant. Along with the social needs of populations that are, that are shifting around the globe right now, and the fact that we have changing expectations of workforces, we have much more of a social consciousness uh, around what does it mean to be a, a worker or to have property or how do our cities function and operate. The idea of smart spaces, which I would qualify as um, it could be a space in a building, it could be a building, it could be a green space. It could be four city blocks. It could be an entire city. I'd say we can't leave out the idea of smart factories, stadiums. All of these areas are being looked at right now uh, because the technology enablement is, is there. It's becoming a reality. There are true business cases behind here. They are doable things. We've gone from imagining what these could be to actually starting down that path right now. And we are just starting that journey. Design at this level is about systems design. And that means that when you have many complex moving parts, you can still break those pieces down into sizable chunks that you can make reasonable progress on. And the ability to architect and manage those and understand those systems that include complex data, that include the human element, that include the physical element, the technology element, the unknown elements. Ultimately, that's where the design has to go. And if we think about, you know, spaces and cities, you know, so now most of technology has been applied to devices. Um, they've been applied to um, cars and other refrigerators and other appliances or things that we use in our everyday life right now. But those didn't exist 100 years ago in many cases. But now the scale of what's happening at the smart city level and the smart space level is that I can actually have environments through the use of sensors, through the use of data, through the use of understanding what expectations are of these generation of workers, that the environment can now greatly enhance whether it's productivity, um, whether it is around sustainability um, goals, whether it's around um, energy efficiency, these are all doable, achievable um, components now within these systems. So design really makes this happen. Once again, you're listening to the Knowledge Institute, where we talk with experts on business trends, deconstruct main ideas, and share their insights. We're here with Corey Glickman, leader of strategic design at Infosys on the topic of smart spaces. And Corey, you'd mentioned everything from what's happening at an individual level all the way to literally cities. Why not go somewhere in the middle and give an example, perhaps what Infosys did with their Mysore campus, our, our Mysore campus, and maybe relate some of these things you mentioned to a real-life situation? We've actually been on a 10-year journey um, in this particular uh, campus with uh, ourselves um, and with our clients um, to understand that, first of all, that Infosys is a large technology company that has um, 220,000 workers currently. Um, Ten years ago, we had about a, a quarter of that many. Um, so we've had extreme growth over these 10 years. And over those 10 years, we've had to change as our clients have had to change. And that means the way that we handle that is be by becoming an institution that is continually learning. 
And it's through this need of continuous learning um, that we had to establish campuses within um, one of our places in Mysore in India that where we could train up now today up to 16,000 people on any given day. So this is one of the factors um, that goes into designing of our campuses. We're also in an area of the developing world, in Asia, in India. So one of the opportunities that you have when you are in a developing environment and a developing social nation is that you have this opportunity to take what others have done in the past and, and take the next step. So there are there is more knowledge, there is there is more learning. So there's this basic fundamental uh, concept that the type of solutions that you come up with are directly proportional to the size of the problem you need to solve. So for instance, in India where water is a big issue, you have to come up with solutions that are very respectful of water resources. If you're putting in new energy um, systems, it's much more likely that you're going to be able to really focus on alternative energy sources versus energy that has been thought of as the last hundred years. You're going to also think about healthier food options. You're going to understand with a growing population, as I said about continuous learning, that how can you provide the tools and the environment for um, individuals to maximize their potential? So you're, we've been on a 10-year journey of learning and, and deploying um, in our Meister campus as an example of how do we deploy these kinds of solutions. Where we first started is we, we clearly established what our business goals would be. Um, we defined what did it mean to have a smart campus and a smart building. Um, we prioritize your organizational goals don't just have to be about yourself. They can't be. It also has to be about the, all the different kinds of clients that you're servicing and your partners that you are working with in order to bring solutions to, to there. And these are factors along with others that you need to start to consider with. Then the second part, which is always necessary, is how do you get buy-in from your organization? Um, how do you learn to cut across the silos of how you do business as normal and um, typical up to now and to be able to achieve some of these new goals? And how can you make your organization um, proficient and productive um, in these areas? And you try things. They go from ideas to proof of concepts to pilots. Some work, some don't work. You look where your investment is. You learn from your partners. You learn from your experiences across there. Um, and you have to have engagement from both at the top level of, of your organization and also buy-in from the bottom level. And then, of course, you will have to find your champions and make an environment where those champions can succeed across there. The third, the third lesson we've learned is really around how to develop clear KPIs so that you can maximize your return on investment. And there's really a, a two-stage um, part of this. You know, so how are you going to justify these investments when it's such a, a new area? Um, even after 10 years, it's still a new area. Every year, we look at a series of opportunities or a series of objectives and goals that we want to choose for. You can't do everything, so how do you prioritize? And the lesson we've learned there is that if you can visualize 10 years out, maybe even 20 years out, but I, I usually say 10 years out of what does good look like, what does the um, goals should be from an organization point of view, we don't have to have that technology just yet because how can you predict what technology is going to be in 10 years? But you should be able to do the stories 
you should be able to start to identify the KPIs that are important and relevant. And then simultaneously, there are things that you can be doing right now to start putting you down that path. And I would describe those as edge opportunities. So we all are talking about um, autonomous vehicles and when will that truly hit the tipping point? Uh, that could be two years, it could be seven years out, you know, depending on what part of the world that you're in. However, right now we do have some areas around these uh, vehicles that we could be doing tests with right now, that we could be creating weight finding systems or smart parking. So there are things that we could be doing right now that we do do to try, learn, harden that technology, find the partners who are involved in there, understand the business value realization across there. So we can look at KPIs that are being learned by those quick proof of concepts and pilots and see how they line up to these longer term KPIs going across there. And then the next step is really starting with a focus incremental approach. So you want to build on the right foundation. And what I mean by that right foundation is not just saying that you have the very best technology or business solution. I think having the right foundation along with adoption is really more about are you building solutions or are you creating the um, environment and the opportunities that ultimately they become the standards that also others use? Because even if you come up with the very best technology solution and the very best um, product out there, if you are the only one doing it, it will not grow and, and succeed. And it also will not contribute socially for everybody else who is trying to go down these paths. What you want to do is you want to place the right bets. You want to share information. You want to make sure that you're not on an island when this is all done, or else you will find that the short gain wins that you have will not extend and scale. And scale is absolutely you know, imperative. Most companies and most individuals, they can do what we refer to as a zero to one. I can do something one off. I can be very smart, get very good people in place, and they can solve a problem for you. And they can do it once, and they can do it to a certain size. But it's the scaling, which is what's ultimately important. Because if it doesn't scale, if it doesn't reach to a certain level, if it can't be done at a certain price point, if it doesn't have a certain amount of reach and touch points, then it doesn't matter how good your idea was. If it doesn't scale, it doesn't work. And scaling itself is very hard. So that has to be baked into um, your, your approach when you go across there. And I, another point that I would call out, although there are others, but we could talk all day on this, um, just because it's such a relevant topic today, and that's about security. Right, whether that security has to deal with um, data, whether it has to deal with personal safety, whether it has to deal with IP, this idea of security um, embedded from day one as we think about things is absolutely vital um, for us at this point. So um, I'd be happy to uh, share with you some of the um, KPIs, if you'd like, of what we've actually achieved um, on our campus. That was the next question, is if you could crystallize that to say what are a small number of the most important benefits because people often think this is great probably good for the environment sounds pretty cool with all the technology and everything happening but can it save money does it make business sense so maybe if you could highlight a couple examples uh, of those metrics or kpis uh, and relate it that'd be nice there are many kpis that you could look at um, let me break this down into uh, two sections and i'll explain why 
So some of the KPIs that we would all recognize in the areas of, uh, say, energy and sustainability, those are numbers that I think are easily or more readily recognizable to say, did I have an impact? And, and we'll talk about those first. Those, those are numbers that said, did I reduce my energy footprint? Um, did I reduce my carbon footprint? Those are things that whether you're doing a retrofit building or if you're putting objectives towards a greenfield opportunity, you can set goals that are quite measurable and you can actually achieve those um, results in relatively good time. So let me give you some examples here. So on our Mysore campus, as I explained, it's been a 10-year journey and it's a 10-year journey that we're on. 10 years ago, we had 30 to 40,000 people that were on that campus. Two, three years ago, we had basically 100,000 people on that campus. Now we have about 140,000 people. But over those two years, we've done some amazing things by applying smart systems to, to the problem set. So, for instance, while we've increased our population, um, our energy consumption has actually been reduced by 34% through using alternative energy solutions. Uh, that has ranged from um, biofuels to uh, solar energy sets to the ability to put um, improved IoT-enabled chillers in place. So even while we've increased the amount of users, we've made significant reductions um, in, in energy usage. Water consumption is another one. As I mentioned before, this is a very, very big issue in India and other parts of the world that over those last three years, we've actually reduced um, the amount of um, water usage by 59%. That's a remarkable statistic. You know, so let's just say it's 60% of our water is now reclaimed and reused. And that, that's just so important because water is just such a valuable resource here. Uh, the idea of waste management, 50% uh, uh, reduction in um, plastic consumption um, um, that we will have achieved by the year 2020. I know um, I have um, children now who are just getting into the college um, level at this point, and the top of discussion every time is about plastics in the ocean and microplastics and this whole new field. And the fact that this idea that we're reducing plastics uh, at, at a rate of 60% at this point is, I think, just phenomenal. Um, we've also looked at green space. So we've improved areas of our foliage coverage with planting trees and green walls across there. We've actually had over 160,000 trees uh, planted within the last three years on our campuses. And the idea of uh, renewable energy, as we talked before, um, about self-generation, we've actually increased that by a level of 40%. So that's really the first category of um, measurements that I could say, what makes a place smart? What have we achieved? What is doable from both a sustainability uh, perspective and carbon and those energy sides. And as I said, those are numbers that are very tangible that you can put a business case against and you can really make happen. There's another side of the question, which socially and intuitively people are seeking and organizations are seeking that has to do with the idea of worker productivity and the ideas of user experience and this idea of um, understanding the shifting um, desires and needs of, of, of populations across here. And those are harder to measure because they take longer to see. 
And it's not a typical thing that you can put a number against to say, did I make you happier at work today? Or am I, you know, being more productive than maybe another factor? However, if you're going to be attracting and retaining the workforce that you need to bring the right level of people in, not just to deliver better work, but to be the kind of company that you want to be, um, I think one of the key aspects that I see over and over again of people who want to do this kind of work, they always talk about they're fascinated by the technology, they're fascinated by the potential but they're also saying that it's really in their hands of what kind of world will we become? You know, we can become a very good place. We can have higher ideals and goals. And they feel that this is a venue that can actually, they can be part of achieving that. And it's those kinds of situations or scenarios that now we're looking at a different kind of economy. We're looking at an outcome-based economy. We're saying, if I have control of your factories as your partner, can I make you more productive? And I'll share on the risk whether or not productivity goes up. If I am going to make a place where people prefer to work and they're more productive and they're more balanced in their life, those are outcome-based scenarios. And there's a new way of writing contracts and agreements between um, organizations and ourselves to say, how do we work in this ecosystem together in order to make this take place? What are the executives telling you as, as they're sharing with you their stories out, uh, out there in the market about the challenges they have in wanting to do this and what are those few things that tell, they're helping them get past it or get going on it? You know, what, what are those barriers and what are those ways to overcome the barriers? So I get to meet with many senior executives at the C-level who, who have this vision and this is definitely on top of their list of agendas to say, how does my organization um, deal with this? And there's, there's a couple of reasons for that. One is, as we talked about, the workforce. The second is the fact that one of the largest um, cost uh, factors for any organization is their use of space. A tremendous amount of money is, is put into space. And understanding how it is used, whether it's a factory or whether it's an office space, um, optimizing and improving that has huge financial returns um, that can also be invested in, in, in new technologies and in new, in new business um, opportunities and ventures across here. And it's also about being a corporate citizen. One of the largest challenges that they have is that this business um, about putting up facilities or smart spaces, they would say maybe 30 years ago, um, or up to now and for the last 30 years, it's all relatively done the same way. This idea of a general contractor who has many vendors working underneath um, and they have to be able to figure out how do I design the right building uh, for its purpose and how do I know that I'm putting enough technology in place, not just for today, but that I'm not going to have to rip and replace in, in a couple of years. So that, that is a big concern as, as they look at these investments. They also want to understand that of their existing buildings, how are they being optimized and should they be modernized? I would say the general rule of thumb is about 75 to 80% of the buildings out there are going to have to be retrofitted. They're not going to build new buildings in most cases. And then there are new buildings that will happen also, and there are two different problems to solve across there. So to the contracting process, and the ability to have this delivery uh, take place to hit 
is a very complex um, area, and there's both the physical aspect of it, there's many, many contractors, there's different kinds of specialists. So this is not something that is typically that you would see at that level of an agenda for a CEO, but now they have to pay attention to it because the dollars and the future are just so significant across there. So how do you get it right? That is really the question here. And the typical traditional players who generally the ones who are around are very, very good. They've been doing business in the same way for many years, but they're modernizing. They're starting to expand uh, how they offer their services to a company that might have just produced um, elevators or um, heating systems, for instance, is now producing uh, software solutions that go along with those, those components around the data. Um, the whole idea of software companies are now going and saying, guess what, we can also look at buildings and we can help you with your general contracting needs and, and specking out um, and managing many of these vendors across here. So it's hard for these um, CEOs and C-level executives to know who do I go with and um, how do I make these decisions coming across here because it's changing so quickly. And the answer is, honestly, it's an ecosystem play. These are large system design programs where no one vendor is going to be able to give you everything. One or two vendors will be able to give you, say, the general contracting role to manage these pieces, but those particular vendors are going to rely on a series of sub-vendors um, that specialize in um, whether it's physical systems or software systems to come about. So it's very hard, right? And there's a lot of things that are changing right now. So the advice that I would give to anybody at this point is, once again, establishing what your goals are and then understanding where do you start with some specific use cases. Do not try to do a whole building from day one. Take a floor or take a couple of floors of a building and start running some um, important aspects, whether it's visitor management or occupancy usage or perhaps it's a smart parking solution or wayfinding. I have these conversations with individuals and they just say, if I had that parking situation solved, um, that would release so much stress and it would free up X amount of funds coming across there. So that's a starting point. The fact of the matter is, is the systems that you would put in place and the philosophy of how did you get there is then transferable into many other use cases, both the physical and the digital side. Ultimately, these solutions are going to utilize things such as digital twins, where you can understand um, the presence of, of a situation or of a person or a business application or a experience at a certain point of time. And using a digital twin, I can both see what's happening or I can predict what's going to happen across there. And I'm going to attach those to control rooms that are going to be able to do monitoring and also doing stress testing across there. Ironically, or fortunately, many of the ways to populate these digital twins is through data. And data, as we all know, is a big thing, but collection of data is not that big or expensive. Sensors are relatively inexpensive, whether it's through lighting systems or systems that um, might be embedded um, in your environment, beacons, etc. The collection of that data is not expensive, so you do have access to that data. What you do with that data and how you choose to um, act upon that, those are business logic. And this is also becoming less and less of a cost because this is where you'll see machine learning and AI truly start to see its potential.
So now you have this ability to look at scenarios. You have this ability to visualize and understand what's happening or what could happen or what has happened. And now you can start putting value realization against there. So a CEO and a decision maker is now able to put a real business case behind here. And it's amazing when we have these discussions. Year one, it's usually, let's take a small space, one or two floors of a building. Usually by one year and a half, it's saying, let's take two of our buildings, one that's retro and one that is being put up new greenfield. And then they're saying in five years, what happens if we take this to 600 buildings across the board? Because it's that clear of a case. Why you can make this leap from, say, one or two buildings to 600 buildings, because the, the business case is readily identifiable once you do one or two buildings. And it becomes such a compelling argument to say, I'm using my space better. I'm attracting that workforce. I'm reducing my energy costs by 50%. I am having this ability to have productivity um, reach new heights. I'm doing things that are more socially responsible, that they will put the funding behind there as long as the technology is going to be able to support that and that the ability for the investment can take place, right? And there's always a case for the investment if you can prove that it will improve your business. And if it helps retain customers, if it helps bring in new customers, if it helps bring in the future workforce, it's a clear-cut case of what's going on. This idea of smart spaces is really the manifestation of that 100 billion objects that we all talk about being connected and talking to each other. And it's really what it's about. You mentioned sustainability and the social aspect, especially for the newer entrants to the workforce, although this is important for all of us. Given the United Nations and their Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs, the 17 that more or less look at solving the existential world issues and giving everyone a framework for them, as I was looking and preparing for this, looking at the 17, there are a few that really stood out. Obviously, the first one is number 11, which is called Sustainable Cities and Communities. But also there is number 9, which includes industry, innovation, infrastructure. And then number 12, which is responsible consumption and production. And the numbers aren't as important as just to reinforce the point. What you're talking about with smart spaces is directly related to these and several others. Could you talk about the impact uh, for, for environmental and, and, and social uh, progress, both in the developing world, I shouldn't say developing, uh, but, but China, India, and some of the economies that are really on fire now, they're really growing, as well as some of the Western countries? That is such an important issue right now, because if you really look at what's happening with the shift of populations and both the economic and social impact that we're seeing globally you know, at this point in history, this idea of moving an industrial base or having um, workforces or new populations um, come into into areas to um, to thrive, basically, right, and also to to lead areas that um, might not be doing so well. We have a new generation of individuals that have come up that say sustainability is just so important. You know, there there is no option. Um, we need to get this right. So, how do you do that? It's, it's, at one level, it is a social consciousness. And then on that level, it's also very much a scientific process, right? So if we look at, say, the players or the roles of who can make this happen first, in, in one aspect, there are businesses and there are individuals um, that I would call the makers, right? They, they have great ideas. They have um, brilliant ideas. 
that say, you know, let's not use plastic straws anymore. Um, let's find new ways of taking microplastics out of the ocean. Let's find ways of uh, controlling traffic patterns and reducing uh, carbon footprint. And these, they get funded through um, venture capitalists. They get funded through grants. They find ways of bringing this about. Those are point solutions, and they're very important. What's hard for them, though, is to scale, right? How many of those individuals with those great ideas actually can do this on their own? Um, ultimately, they have to team with, with others, um, both financially and technologically and socially, in order to, to bring about. On the other side of this equation is the idea of, of science. Real science has to take place. Um, in order to know that you're getting it right. Data is hard things to understand. If you're truly going to do things that are going to make a difference in areas such as sustainability and innovation, they have to be backed by real science and real engineering in order for them to really be effective and to be sound so that it can expand and scale across there. So I believe that there's this opportunity in the middle of practical application of um, a role that sitting between the science, which is very hard for most people to understand, and the energetic um, makers that have great ideas of how can we bring that science to a level where it can be applied. And once again, accelerators like artificial intelligence and technology and smart environments will have a huge impact across there. If you truly think who uses a city, uh, not everybody's a technologist, right? There are so many other roles that, that people play that make that difference of why is something sustainable? Um, who is driving those cars or who is riding in those cars? Who is populating those buildings across there? They want to be able to use the technology or use the experiences around the technology for them to achieve um, what they need to do in their daily lives but they don't have to understand it to the nth level of science across there. So making it accessible, um, I've heard the term which I strongly like is the democratization of, of digital or artificial intelligence, allowing it to proliferate at all levels for all types of individuals is how this will come about. And I think it's through that democratization, um, understanding of inclusiveness around the globe and what the differences are of working in Asia versus in the East or in um, parts of um, Europe also and in the West in the U.S. and other countries that might be um, more developed in some ways. That is what's going to level and make this happen. And I truly believe that by embracing a wider idea of solutioning and looking at those problems that need to be solved is what's going to drive it. And goes back to a theme that I mentioned earlier. The idea that the problem you're trying to solve directly impacts how good of a solution or what size of a solution you actually go with. If you're in an area that does not have great water access and you need to have water for your population, you are much more likely going to deploy a very good water reclamation program. If you're in an area that's okay with water, you'll probably do the minimal um, to go there. And you will not have um, as great a um, investment in those technologies. And eventually, you'll probably fall behind of that other area. I, I think it's absolutely a fascinating time in history at this point.
What's the biggest misconception about smart spaces? The biggest misconception about smart spaces is that our current ways of thinking about deploying um, and executing the general contracting part of the solution that's putting up the buildings, that's deploying the solutions, can be done in the way that it's been done for the last 30 years. There has to be a new way of working through this, through an ecosystem of partners, not all of which have traditionally been in this idea of facilitations and, and, and management. So that is really the biggest misconception. And the ability to understand that it is going to take the next 10 to 20 years to truly fulfill this. And I think what would be surprising is how large this will actually become in compared to other ways of um, technology and, and, and social impact. It sounds like smart spaces make a lot of business sense. What about the impact socially and on the environment? So the social impact is undeniable. The idea of what we're seeing today in shifting populations, of um, the idea of the changing workforce, the um, new social consciousness of doing what's right and making the world a better place. This idea that our buildings and our cities and our spaces can now actually use technology, can actually use data, use ideas like artificial intelligence to amplify the um, increase the odds of being successful is is absolutely um, a measurable, doable thing to, to happen right now. And it will happen at all levels. It just won't be the technologists and the scientists that will make this happen. It will be all manners of workers and um, participants in our society coming across um, into our cities. I think the very definition of what defines a city will actually be impacted uh, across here. So it's all about how to make the world a better place, how to have people live longer, how to deal with the scarce resources that we have, how to come up with better solutions uh, so that the basic needs and the basic rights of, of individuals and societies are respected, that we're all more tolerant, and that we actually start pushing forward um, to make this a better place. Fantastic. Corey, as people would like to learn more about you, as what's the best way they can find you online? Sure. Um, happy to have discussions with anybody. Very easy to get a hold of. Um, I can be um, reached through um, my context at, at Infosys. Um, that's very easy. It's my um, first name, C-O-R-E-Y, then dot Glickman, G-L-I-C-K-M-A-N, at Infosys.com. I'm also on the faculty of Singularity University, where I head up the Smart City curriculum and program. I also um, have associations with um, MIT University and uh, Carnegie Mellon University. You can also find me through LinkedIn, um, through my profile. And like I said, I answer everybody's phone calls, um, everybody's emails. Uh, some one of my mentors in the past has always done that, and it's something that I've always um, made sure that I did it also. And everyone, you can find details also on our show notes and transcripts uh, at emphasis.com slash IKI in our podcast section. Corey, thank you so much for your time and a highly interesting discussion. Jeff, I want to thank you, and I want to thank um, anybody who's taking the time to listen to this. 
I'm very interested in your thoughts about this also. Uh, so hopefully we can continue the conversation. Great. Everyone, you've been listening to the Knowledge Institute, where we talk with experts on business trends, deconstruct main ideas, and share their insights. Until next time, thanks for listening. Keep learning.